little data knots. Uh, nope, we're not going to talk about getting up from our desks and uh, leaving our many single panes of glass alone while we get some exercise. Although, that wouldn't be a bad episode. No, instead, today we are going to talk about the key elements of building a physical data center. Data cabling, racks, HVAC, power, and then managing all of that stuff. The death of the physical data center is greatly exaggerated. And today, we build the perfect data center beast here on the Data Knots podcast. At PacketPushers.net, you can find us on all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering or just search for Datanauts spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcast directory. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks. And with me is Chris Wall at Chris Wall on Twitter, whose data center designs bring all the enterprises to the yard. Joining mm-hmm. us today is uh, John Kearns. John, please introduce yourself to the Datanauts audience. Hey, guys. I'm John Kearns. I'm a principal networking engineer at a... IT Services VAR based in Southern California. All right. Let's first talk about containing this perfect data center beast, you know, putting it in racks and HVAC, all some of that kind of stuff first. And starting off to levels that we should mention this concept of data center tiering, that there are multiple tiers out there. I don't know need to know that we need to get super deep in it. I mean, Chris, you, I know you worked at one point with, uh, with different data center tiers because of some of your requirements. How, how would you sum that up? Wait, wait, I'm still focused on the like deal a meal esque pitch that you did in the intro. Are we are we gonna start like a fitness program for the data nuts? <laughs> we that... should have one of those maybe. <laughs> hmm. Okay. All right. Enough shenanigans. Yes, yes, I, I was doing a bunch of RFPs for data centers, and that's when I realized because the marketing folks at the data centers sure wanted me to know about the tiering scale, and essentially it's tier one through four. Tier four being like basically if a tier four data center survives the things it's designed to survive, no one's going to care because it's like apocalyptic level survival, you know, earthquakes <laughs> okay. and floods. And you know, there's no one left to use the data. <laughs> tier three is really where you're shooting for. That's like dual everything. Multiple pops are coming into it for Internet links and, you know, generators can run 48 hours, that kind of jazz. Anything below that, it's kind of risky to some degree just because the redundancy start to lower data center level functions have redundancy but not necessarily the ecosystem plugging into the data center tier one is my home lab that's basically how it goes there you go <laughs> okay so there you go folks there, there are dc tiers there's four of them and if you do a quick internet search you can find out more of the detail if that is interesting to you all right moving on to racks now traditionally i've installed 19 inch racks John, your take, is there a favorite kind of rack you like for environments or, you know, special considerations we should have? Yeah, so typically in a data center build, most of your equipment is going to go in in a cabinet. So that's a rack that has four posts or four connecting points, four rails inside of it that typically has some kind of containment for airflow. So it has like sides on it. It's not just an open rack. Those are the most expensive way to go. If you're building your own data center, if you're moving into a colo, that's most likely what they're going to have for you. And size-wise, again, if you're moving into a colo, typically you don't really have a choice. They are going to have their standard rack configuration. Sometimes it's their own proprietary build. I've seen that. Sometimes it's just a, you know some uh, APC or something like that. But generally speaking, the width and depth is is non-negotiable for the most part. If you're buying a big enough cage, sometimes they'll let you change those out. But generally speaking, a lot of us, when we do a data center build, we like to try and separate network gear into server gear. That way, you know, the server guys don't get the keys to our network rack and, you know, how we love to do those, those uh, kinds of things. We don't want the keys. Keep your <laughs> yeah. stuff away yeah. from our servers. Yeah. Exactly. We, don't, we don't want them in there, you know, pulling the cables. And so... Generally, we'll put network gear in its own rack or its own set of racks, and those typically have a lot more cabling in them than a server rack or a storage rack or other types of equipment. And so if you can, if you're building your own, it's really nice to have like the extra wide racks for your networking gear. To bring in all the fiber and give, you know, in other words, have somewhere for those big bundles of cable that are coming into that rack to go and be neatly tied off and so on. Exactly. And a lot of those racks, a lot of those cabinets, I guess we should call them, have options for like vertical cable management. And it makes things a lot nicer when you're trying to tie all your your equipment together with the million different cables and things that you have in there. Whereas with a server rack, you know, Chris just gets in there and plugs in a couple fiber cables and and, uh, calls it a day. Yeah. (laughs) I, I will say, I will bring up one thing that I noticed from years of doing data center work is people are really particular about their rack, especially when it's an enterprise 
environment. I, I had one environment where we bought a solution. It was all in the black, typical gunmetal or, or black type rack comes in and like, well, we only have blue racks. And literally we had to deconstruct the entire environment, put it back together in a blue cabinet instead of the <laughs> black cabinet. Because color, it's like racing stripes on a car, apparently. It influences the speed in which your IT operates. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Some people get very particular about the look and feel of a data center and the racks and the cable coloring and things like that. It, I don't know how often they really spend looking at it. I don't usually see them behind, like, you know, glass doors and on display with lights and things. But I mean, people I would do get very cable particular color about if it's If it's some way to cable code through coloring, but... To me, it was like the cabinet color, like who's, I don't know. That was just, it's it's a, hey, be aware if you're doing services for an enterprise, check what color they want for their cabinets, because that's a thing that I didn't realize. <laughs> it definitely is, yeah. Now, we mentioned APC cabinets along the way, and I know they have accompanying software that goes with that that you can use to manage uh, the racks and the inventory in the racks. You can get pretty granular with it. So, you know, in rack X4, uh, rack units 33 and 34, you've got this two-rack unit thing. Is there a, a special inventory management tool that you like, John? I know APC has their own and if you're buying their equipment, then you can license that and use it. And they, they do have some cool stuff built into the racks. They have like management systems where you can do like RFID key doors and things like that. But generally speaking for inventory management, I guess in the past I've used a lot of spreadsheets, which is probably where a lot of engineers will oh, yeah. gravitate towards. That's sort mm -hmm. of the go-to, right? But as far as infrastructure management and tracking, NetBox from Jeremy Stretch at Packet Life. I think about a year ago now, he released, he, he works for DigitalOcean, and he released a open source data center inventory management system called NetBox that is heavily under development right now. He's constantly coming out with new releases, and there's all kinds of features being built in, but it's really easy to install. It's very easy to use. It's all like Python and Django based, so it's really fast. Uh, you don't have to worry about like, you know, some Flash based application with JavaScript in the back doing all kinds of stuff that takes forever and spins up your CPU. So I really like NetBox. I'd encourage anybody that's, you know, sort of looking around and, and demoing different solutions to look at for infrastructure management and tracking. Check out NetBox. See if you like it. It's free and it's very under very active development. And if there's something that it doesn't do that you really want it to, it's not like you have to pony up a bunch of money and try and contact your vendor to get them to add the feature and just get a developer to add it in for you and merge it. Sweet. Yeah. Open source for the win. Whoop, whoop. Yep. One thing that I saw, I don't know, within the last five-ish years or so was the meat curtains. It looked like a butcher block operating within the data center. And that's just a reference to the plastic sheets that are being used for airflow for the hot aisle, cold aisle. So let's tease apart some of the airflow conversations. Now, traditionally, it's just servers eat air in the front and they blow out air in the back. And it was what it was. But I've noticed, you know, different opinions around blanking panels, about sleeves, having the hot ale, again, the butcher style curtains, which I got to say, that's a little, it's a little intimidating when you first come to data center. You're like, what's, what's with like the butcher curtains going on I haven't on over seen there? the like, curtains before. I mean, have that, you seen that, those? Yeah. That yeah, I haven't like, seen. It's the plastic, you know, long strips that are used yeah. to kind of block off the air conditioning so that it's not chilling the entire data center, just the fronts, you know, it's basically coming out either the bottom or the top of the data center to feed the fronts of the cabinets. And at first I'm like, man, this looks like a Halloween thing going on in here. It's a little, little creeped out. Depending on whether or not you're building your own data center or moving into, into a colo, and also depending on how large your data center is, airflow can be a big deal or it can really not be that big of a deal. From my experience, Smaller builds where you don't have a huge amount of power density in your racks. Generally speaking, trying to like section off your hot aisle and cold aisle isn't going to do much for you because the whole room is not that big. It's as big as maybe like a couple of medium-sized yeah. bedrooms. And you're not really going to be able to section off your hot aisle and cold aisle effectively. And the whole room, just because the air conditioning is oversized, will stay the temperature that you want in your cold aisle anyway. But for larger builds, and especially in co-location facilities where you are right up against your neighbors, so you're packing as much of your gear as you can into one rack and asking for bigger and bigger power circuits for that one spot, you're generating a lot of heat. And co-location facilities will get very particular about blanking panels. In fact, I've seen some facilities that 
don't seem to think blanking panels are good enough. And after you're done going in and building your data center, they'll get in there with like these big strips of foam with adhesive on one side and, and stick them all around everything to completely like airtight seal off that front barrier between the hot aisle and cold aisle. That seems insane to me, though, because the operating <laughs> temperature range for service and network equipment is pretty wide. I mean, you, it is. all that it pain is. in the butt with foam to gain what? A, a, you know, a couple degrees difference at best? Right. And the more and more you really try and chase after separating that airflow to get more efficiency out of it, the less and less you're really going to get in the end. I don't think you really get that all that much with foam, although there are you know very large co-location facilities who seem to think that they do. What's your take on cable management, John? There's always cables in, in, in cabinets of some kind, depending on how many hosts you got in there, whether or not there's a switch in there, et cetera. So you got vertical cable management going uh, up and down in the cabinet, and you got horizontal, which eats an RU, and I don't know that you necessarily get that much out of it. I've used them in a few cases if there's really a lot, a lot of cables to manage to help fan them out nice and neatly and so on, but I'm really a fan of vertical for the most part, and then Velcro for the fan out, you know, Velcroing the bundle and then, you know, peeling off the cables that need to go into a particular RU. I just wonder what your take was on uh, on cable management within a rack. Yeah, so vertical cable management is very often extremely useful. And that's one of the big benefits of having that wider cabinet where you can actually have those cable managers built into the sides. Uh, and it really, you know, keeps the air fl- or the uh, airspace in front of the equipment open, both in front and behind. I don't think horizontal cable management is really all that useful, especially if you're building your data center inside of like a colo cage where you're really paying top dollar for each rack you. And if you're going to waste one or two U on some dumb piece of cable management, horizontal cable management, that's going to do nothing but hold your cables. It really gets hard to justify at that point when the cost of those rack use are so high. If you're building your own and your own facility and you can just throw as many things in a rack as you want and it doesn't matter and it's cheap, then it might be worth it. Some people really want it. But in my opinion, it's it's never really been all that useful. One thing that definitely is useful, though, that I haven't seen implemented a lot, but I, I have been putting in every data center that I've built for the past few years is front to back cable management. When you put your equipment in a co-location facility or in your own, if you're really trying to keep your airflow restricted and have a, a, a really separated hot aisle and cold aisle, you always have to mount your equipment with the air intakes on the cold aisle. And depending on the different type of equipment Mm -hmm. and the manufacturer, they love to flip ports around and have power on the cold aisle. And in the end, you're always running a lot of cables from the hot aisle to the cold aisle and vice versa. And there are cable trays that some manufacturers make. I know Chatsworth is one of them. It's one that I've used quite a bit. They're about one U tall and they're, you know, they sort of slide together. They really just give you a a simple tray that runs front to back that has a, br- a nice brush in the front for restricted airflow that lets you run all the cables you want front to back in a way that you can always get to them and run new cables or remove them and things like that, rather than trying to like run it around the side where you can never get to again once you mount a bunch of equipment in the way and things like that. Those front to back cable trays are a lifesaver when but, you but only uh, when you're going blue. back. Only if they're blue. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you better get the right color because I. But I, I think they only come in one, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, um, that's, and that's always annoying because it's always that one switch or something that you're having to run backwards. Uh, right. With its equipment on the top. Yeah, it's it's a it's a bummer. Yeah, you have like you know forty eight Cat five cables going from front to back, and you have to try and run them through the side rails, and you'll never be able to pull those back out or run another one again. You know, back through it if you have all uh, if you're full of gear in your equipment in your cabinet there. Well, on the topic of airflow, then we have to talk about temperatures, you know, the, the HVAC system itself. Traditionally, you keep the data center at uh, just above freezing, essentially, or at least that's yes. what it feels like when you bring your jacket and earmuffs and everything in there. Uh, yeah, although if you're I comfortable, have seen... then, then it's not correct. Then it's definitely yeah. <laughs> That's the litmus test. Uh, <laughs> but moving forward, it feels like there's been some effort to get more humane or, or even in some cases hot type data center temperatures. So let's dig into that a bit. You know, what are we looking at for temperature, humidity, et cetera? You know, some thoughts on data center temperatures and HVAC. Classically, like, I don't know, 10 years ago, if you went to a data center, it was like the colder, the better. And, you know, the colder your data center, the better you slept at night. And, and the more uncomfortable your engineers were in there, then, you know, the faster the work got done when they had to go in and do something. That's a good motivator. Yeah, I guess so. More modernly, I've seen a lot of a lot of data centers that are in a much more comfortable range for at least for us humans. 
the actual range and classifications of different data centers and what temperatures and relative humidities you can run them at is actually a lot larger than most people think. For some of the higher higher class data centers, the higher tiers, you can actually run between like 60 and up to even 90 degrees, which seems counterintuitive to anybody who's stepped in a, in like a modern data center or co-location facility. But the equipment can actually handle a lot more heat than we usually give it credit for. We, you know, a, a lot of us engineers like to try and tiptoe around the the concept of temperature. And we think it's, you know, it's like packed meat that, you know, if it runs one degree out of this very slim range, it's it's going to fail. All my hard drives are going to go bad and I'm going to lose all my data. That's typically not uh, as accurate as we, t- we seem to think it is. If you are designing your own data center, you'll likely have a contractor coming in that has has a lot of experience with this and a lot of recommendations for temperatures. And you'll also have data sheets on your equipment that has recommended running temperatures for your gear. That would be something good to stick to is is really just get a general idea of what temperature range and relative humidity range your gear is recommended to run in by the manufacturer and try and stick in there. But for the most part, I've seen most data centers run around like 75 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's usually with a and humidity is generally speaking a, a large factor here because the drier you run your data center, the more static you get in your internal equipment on your motherboards with the air moving through. But the more humid you run it, you run the risk of with all of your equipment being so cold, you getting possible condensation that could fry your gear. So relative humidity is is an important factor. You don't want it too dry or too uh, too humid in your data center. There are like very complex graphs and sheets on what temperature to run in, but if you can read through them all and you'll get the general idea that there is quite a large range, it's probably safe to assume that if you as a human are comfortable in there, then your equipment is probably going to be pretty comfortable. It's just a, a good general idea. Yeah. So moving along to uh, hot aisle, cold aisle, we've mentioned that a bit. The big idea being you've got, uh, let's assume this is a data center that's got a pressurized floor where the HVAC is pushed underneath this pressurized floor and then pops up through perforated tiles. That makes up your cold aisle. That is the the ingest. The cold air gets pushed up uh, from the pressurized floor through the perf tiles. The intake fans on the equipment pull it through the gear to cool it and then exhaust it out the back into the hot aisle. And if you were to look at that from the side, you kind of get a, a convection uh, current in uh, in larger installations. And then, John, as you said earlier, in smaller installations, it kind of kind of doesn't make a lot of difference, really, because the, the whole room is going to end up feeling pretty cold. You might feel a little warmer in the hot aisle, but on the whole, if it's a pretty small room, then eh, still a good practice to follow, but not nearly as important as as when you get into larger installations. One thing I'm curious about, though, is uh, you guys' strategy on uh, on HVAC failures, because there's going to come a time when, for whatever reason, the HVAC isn't working, the room starts to heat up, and then how do you deal with that? Because all the machinery generating heat the room gets hot pretty quickly uh, and, and uncomfortably quickly for humans or for gear. And what's your strategy? And the, the, the strategy I've always seen are the fans, right? Well, prop the door open, put a fan in there, and just try to move air through the room as best you can. Is there anything better than that? This is much easier to deal with when you have a smaller data center. You have like maybe half a dozen racks in a room. You can get rolling HVAC units, sometimes up to like five tons of cooling capacity, And if you have the power available in the room, which a lot of times you will, especially if you prepare for something like this, you can have either have a unit delivered quickly or you can buy one and have one sitting in the room or outside in storage or something like that, where you'll have a big vent that will either run up into the plenum space above and be able to vent into the rest of the office or the the rest of the building that you're in, uh, or you'll be able to run it out the door. But you'll be able to have that cooling system running in there when your condenser up on the roof or something fails. That's a nice to have if you can do something like that. For larger installations, this is probably not possible. You can't have some truck-sized HVAC unit that you can roll in and, and start using it. Most data centers will have some kind of either fresh air venting ability. Uh, some of the higher-end ones will have secondary units. Although the idea when you get into scales the size of a, like a co-location facility or a large data center, you don't really usually have an A and B side. You have modular systems where you'll have 
a dozen different HVAC units. And if one of them fails, you've lost, you know, a twelfth of your capacity. So you don't really have that risk of losing your primary HVAC unit. And then you got to kick on your secondary HVAC unit. They'll typically build this stuff modularly where if you do have a failure, it will only affect a small part of your capacity. And as long as you overbuild it by a certain percentage, you don't really have to worry too much about it. This week's takeaways are brought to you by Too Much Fun. That's right. Too Much Fun will keep your podcast hosts busy for over an hour nerding out about cables, labels, dust, and airflow. Eden's going to remind you again at the end of the episode, but as you continue to listen, take note of any areas you'd like to hear in a part two or additional episode on this topic. The guys realized as they recorded there was just too much here, and the episode is already a bit long, so you're in charge of your takeaways this week. Use Twitter to share what you learned and help guide future discussions. Okay, back to the show. Okay, John, we've dug into kind of the plant level discussion around level setting, racks, HVAC, all that kind of jazz. Let's get into, I'll be humble here. It's my favorite part, cabling, right? Because because we all, we go to the, there's cable porn where you can go on and see beautifully cabled racks. And then there's the cable spaghetti or the cable shame where you can see just the world's most disgusting things where you're <laughs> like, I hope I never have to deal with that. But we all have. So starting off at the beginning, overhead trays versus raised floors, opinion, because I, I know that's a little heated, you know, concrete floors with overhead trays or raised floors and everything goes through kind of the pressurized plates on the bottom. Thoughts there? Either one can work. They'll both most likely do what you need. Overhead trays work, I suppose, if you have much higher weight requirements. So if you're on like a single floor building and you don't want a raised floor because you you have all of these battery banks that weigh, you know, a couple of tons in a rack and no raised floor that you can put in will support that, then you might want to look at overhead trays. But there aren't a lot of installations that really are under that kind of requirement, generally speaking. So either one can work. The challenge, I would say, John, is if it, either way, is keeping the cable neat. So I've been in a number of raised floor environments where you pop a tile and stick your head down there because you got to run a cable and it looks like the apocalypse down there. And in fact, there can be piles of cables so deep, depending on just how, how deep that raised floor is, that it's blocking airflow in some spots. It's, it's just – it's so bad. And so there's a, there's a discipline that comes in both installing cables neatly and then uninstalling cables that are no longer needed to avoid that situation that can just very easily happen over years if people are lazy or in a hurry. Yeah, and, and I guess – when it's in an overhead tray and you can see it every day, people are less likely to make it a mess. Uh, whereas, <laughs> you know, when you can stick it under the floor and you never have to look at it until you, you know, pop that tile and you see the, uh, you see like the the birds that have taken nest up under your data center yeah. floor, <laughs> it, it does make it a little bit more difficult for people running the operations and adding cables and removing cables to get messy with it when it's as visible using an overhead tray. So I guess that would be a benefit of the overhead tray system. But the raised tiles do have the benefit of they also provide a plenum space for your cold air for a lot of the installations, which was something that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Whereas with an overhead tray system, if you're just on a, on a hard concrete floor, you have to build that plenum space up in the ceiling for feeding in your cold air and then taking away your hot air. And there are systems that do this and co-location facilities a lot of times have their own proprietary system that they're very proud of, of how they do this kind of stuff. But either one can work. And there are modern installations that are using either one, depending on how they want to do things and what kind of weight capacity they want to support and things like that. But I do see new data centers coming out that have one or the other I can't say it like one is necessarily better than the other unless you have certain requirements. And a lot of times you're going to inherit a facility anyway that maybe is set up for you in a particular way. It's worth mentioning that if you're running cable in a plenum, you need to be aware of fire rating uh, of the cable and have plenum rated cable so that it's not putting – as it burns off, if there were a fire, a poisonous fumes into the air, that's that's a thing to be concerned about. Another thought here on your cable plants is fiber versus copper. So a lot of times now in data centers, you're going to have – an extensive amount of fiber as well as copper. And my opinion, keep them separate. If you can build a fiber raceway to keep the fiber in, 
that keeps it separate from copper, do that. Fiber is more fragile. You, you, can, you can damage the uh, opt- ability of that fiber to carry optical signal if you crack it. Copper is a bit more tolerant, but mixing them up is, uh, is a mistake as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I agree. Up in your raceways, if you can keep them separate, do. Because as, as engineers, when we're getting in there and, and moving stuff around, we can get pretty tough with copper cable. It, it's kind of difficult to damage a, a Cat5 cable in comparison to a fiber cable. And so when you're getting in there ripping cables around, if it pulls against the fiber and you, you know, you turn it around a, a bend and you crack that fiber, hopefully that's not like your single internet link that has no backup and, you know, everybody races in asking you what you're doing in there, taking down the whole data center. But, hopefully, but sometimes that's the case, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, when you're dealing in your vertical cable management, one thing that I will typically do is really just try to separate your copper from your fiber in the same way. So don't Velcro them together right? Try and tuck your fiber into the back and run it along the back of your of your vertical cable managers and then run your copper on top so that if you're ripping around in your copper and moving cables around, you're leaving your fiber relatively undisturbed. Yeah. So another quick question, John, you don't have to elaborate on this much, but w- within a cabinet, do you cut custom patch length cables, uh, you know, hand make them or uh, just, just buy pre-configured patch just leads? Just buy them. And- just buy them. Yeah. So you're you're willing to allow, allow those little coils of extra that uh, that might come up and, and hang them in the cabinet. Yeah, you have to be able to deal with the slack from cables that are longer than necessary in, in some way. And people who like a very pretty, perfect data center that have a, a lot of data center vanity, and it must be perfect, and the colors be organized, and they get really restricted. And and I have seen people build their own length cables, but generally speaking, it's it's just a waste of time unless you're putting it up for show and it's behind some glass wall and you know, you're putting lights on it for the executives that walk by it every day. You can tuck away your extra length somewhere. Well, and that that's my only caveat. If you can tuck the extra length away in that cabinet and, and do it in a neat way that doesn't block airflow, because I've seen some people that's like, <laughs> they needed a one meter run and there's a four meter cable in there and they've got like coil, 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 coil. It's like, come on, guys. That's just, you do that's that just buying times. the wrong size cable. Yes. And that's one of the tricks is is when you're stacking your gear, stack it appropriately so that you don't need to use extra long cables. Use the the shortest possible cable you can that's not like pulled really taut. And and then you don't have the problem of dealing with, you know, three meters of extra cable length that you have to try and coil up and stuff away somewhere. And then it just gets in the way when you're trying to go in and do something else. And what about labeling the cables? Is that something where it's like, hey, you have the spreadsheet. It's the third one to the left. Or do you put the little tags and whatnot around the the heads or or near the boot of the cable? Or what's your strategy there? Labeling cables definitely does have its benefit. And I've seen it done a lot of different ways. I've done it a few different ways. And the way that I've found that I really like the most is between flags and wraps. um, Wraps do look a little bit cleaner. Wraps meaning you're wrapping a a label around the cable so it's in line and flags meaning you sort of tie it around and it's hanging off and you can flick it like a little flag. Wraps do look a little bit nicer. They are harder to read because you have to try and twist the cable to see like, you know, or move your head around and try and see what it says, whereas a flag is a little bit easier to read, but they do look a little bit, a little worse. So wraps are a good way to go. And one thing I would recommend is never label your cables with the device names or specific device information. This is a mistake I've seen a lot of people make where <laughs> every one of their cables has the device name and the port number and then the, the other side, you know, device name and port number. If you want to reuse that cable, which we're constantly going in and changing our data centers and, you know, rewiring things quite often, especially after it's first built and therefore after it's first labeled, to reuse that cable, you're going to have to peel that label off. You're going to have to go try and print a new one, which if you ordered your, your cables like from a, a manufacturer or from your cabling vendor or something like that, good luck, right? The better way that I've found to do it is print out or order your cable wraps or, or flag labels or whatever you want to use with serial numbers. So come up with your own serial number system, print out, you know, however many you think you're going to need, a few hundred labels. Label all of your cables up front before you install them. In fact, don't even unwrap them before you label them because you want to make 100% sure that you have the same number on each side. And then just use whatever cable you need. 
and documented in, in some kind of spreadsheet. And if you reuse that cable or replace it, no big deal. Just replace the label. Yeah, I've never worked in that strategy where you use the cable serial numbers, but I it's one I'm familiar with that I've always wanted to try. Uh, I've always been in the environment where uh, one one environment in particular where it was a very particular install and everything had a, a very strict set of rules when you installed something. The cable was uh, done with a wrap, a vinyl wrap, and uh, printed out with a device number and a bunch of other things that made the cable useless if you're going to try to reuse it. John, bringing cables in from outside and into the building, I uh, just... You know, my take on it is if you're building a unique facility, you want to try to avoid the things that can sever a cable outside the building and make sure you've got one cable that would be immune from that sort of a problem. So maybe you do things like uh, one set of cables coming in the building is aerial. The other set of cables are going to come in underground. So if someone hits a telephone pole, the underground cable is still okay. If someone digs up the underground cable, the telephone cable, the aerial cable is still okay uh, and so on. Any other thoughts along those lines? Yeah, if you can, if you can get diverse paths through the ground or one aerial, one through the ground, absolutely do it. If you can't because it's too expensive, you know, you're moving into a building. Uh, so this is generally when you're building when you're building your own data center in your own facility. It can get very expensive to try and pull new fiber in through a diverse path because most buildings do not have that. They have one run of fiber from the street and that is where everything comes in. And if a backhoe digs that up, then it's too bad for everybody. If you don't have the money to be able to do a diverse path uh, through the ground, a better option might be uh, a radio connection. So there's a lot of companies, especially in metropolitan areas, that will hand you a microwave circuit. Uh, they'll go up on your on the roof of your building. They'll put a little antenna up there. And they'll give you anywhere between you know 100 megs, and I've seen up to about 300 megabits, of internet capacity over a completely wireless system where you don't have to, the only thing that can really break it is trees growing in the way, which is not as uncommon as it might sound. But that is, from what I have found, a pretty good solution for a backup internet path if you're worried about diverse connections out of your building and you have like some construction going on down the street where you're, you're worried they might, you know, dig up some the fiber that's uh, that's feeding your data center. All right, I'm going to transition into power because I feel like the cable discussion is great. I learned a lot, but but power, it's it's it, I think it's a tougher conversation because it's you know how much power do you need? How do you compute how much power is need? Is it lick your finger, stick it in the air, be like oh this feels like 121 gigawatts? You know what what's the process there? <laughs> so. Scoping power for your for a data center is somewhat of a guessing game. There is no like simple mathematical calculation to be made. There are some documents out there that'll help you out with it. Uh, I've seen some engineers go as far as add up the wattage capacity of every power supply they have, and then that's the power that they need. And you'll quickly find out it's you know you're going to need to build your own power station next door. Generally speaking, your equipment will not pull 100% capacity probably at any point in its life, or at least 100% of its power supply's capacity. A starting point that I will typically look at is taking a single side of all of your power supplies. So if you have two 800-watt power supplies in the back of a server, just consider that an 800-watt server. Factor that by half and multiply that by all of your servers. That, generally speaking, is probably about what it's going to pull and again, this is also depending on your compute load that you're going to be putting on it. If you're going to be running, yeah. you know, a few hundred SQL servers and you're going to be maxing out those uh, those servers with memory and VMs, then you're probably going to be pulling more power than that. However, if you're overbuilding in your physical infrastructure, it's probably going to be relatively idle. Well, do you, do you think there's any any like like with network capacity, John? You'll design sometimes for peak loads. Do you think there's a peak load that you need to design for? For for example, cold startups. So I worked in an environment where there was a lot of concern about, okay, well, if the whole data center goes down and we got to power the whole thing up cold, then there'll be a peak load that we got to worry about. And so there, there would be a lot of discussion about load as you plug in different power supplies, being careful of which phase of power so that if that whole rack were to spin up at once, you wouldn't blow a phase uh, just because everybody's spinning up and drawing a lot of power during the boot cycle. A cold start surge load like that in the IT industry is – Probably not going to happen. Uh, the reason why is when you're talking about power consumption and cold start loads, you start looking into things like resistive versus uh, capacitive 
loads where resistive is really where all of your servers and your networking equipment is going to be. And capacitive is things like large three-phase motors and things like that that actually do pull more power when they start up than they do running regularly. If you throw a clamp meter on your power connection on a server, you'll probably realize that it doesn't really surge in power consumption when it first boots up. So trying to factor in like adding a you know 50% capacity on t- uh, in your UPSs and your inverters and things like that for a cold start is probably not going to help you because cold starts don't really happen with the type of power load that you have in a data center. Ah, you're saying I was the victim of, of some mythology then that, uh, ah, most I likely. Okay. And if you want to like read about that, you can go read into, um, resistive versus capacitive loads and power factors where your power factor is, you know, uh, it's sort of a calculation between at what point in your phase you're pulling, uh, more amperage than, uh, voltage and things like that. But, Generally speaking, cold starts probably are not a thing you're going to have to deal with. Again, unless you're talking about HVAC. Now, HVAC, because your compressors are all uh, motors and in some situations quite large ones, you will have some kind of cold start load. Most people probably won't be running their cooling systems on like a battery backup, so you don't really have to worry too much in your UPS infrastructure, most likely, about a cold start in your HVAC. And you can also... Think about the fact that your HVAC is going to be constantly turning on and turning off. So a cold start on an HVAC system is probably not going to be any larger than it would be throughout the day as it's turning on and off. Power distribution into different cabinets then, that is, uh, in the systems that I've worked with, typically there's a big main power distribution module. Well, there'll be several of them you know, within the data center that then fan out to remote distribution units of some kind, and then from there to to PDUs, actually, uh, essentially intelligent power strips hanging into each individual rack. Is that the kind of a system you're familiar with, or, or are there other ways to actually route the power around the, the DC? Yeah, so for bigger data centers, you'll have like a power rack in line in one of your rows. In, in some of the like hot L containment systems that companies like APC will put together where they'll do like two rows of racks with a, a lid on top and a door so that your hot L is contained, you'll have in-row cooling and power most likely. And that's that's a pretty efficient little system, sort of a data center in a box type system that, that works really well. I've seen a lot of them deployed. If you're in a smaller build, you're probably just going to have like a, a, a couple of 240 volt uh, or 250 volt outlets up at the top with the UPS in your rack and some equipment in there with it. So generally, you are going to have some kind of power distribution unit, whether that be like a zero U power uh, PDU that mounts on the side of your cabinets or like a one U or two U unit that uh, sits right there, you know, in the middle of the rack for all of your stuff to connect to. You do have to have some kind of distribution unit to effectively fan out the the power connections from some large distribution type connector uh, that may be like a, a large three phase or or a single phase like 30 amp connector into your individual outlets for your servers. So you're you're almost always going to have some kind of PDU there. The only exception I've really seen to that is where you have a single switch, like some large 6500 switch that people connect directly to the outlets in the wall because those are the big C19 20 amp connectors that it didn't seem worth it to put in any kind of distribution unit because that's the only piece of equipment sitting in the rack. Yeah, I'll follow on with that, John. Just uh, you, you just got me thinking about that. That distribution oftentimes is also going to be tied back into some kind of uh, failover system, like a generator, and there may be a big uh, battery that is used as a buffer as you switch over between the main uh, street power, if you will, and then the generator-driven power, uh, all of that can add some complexity into that, which which really makes for an interesting thought on uh, uh, getting all that stuff tested. Right. So if you have those kind of redundant power systems where you have a generator and you have your street power uh, and you have your UPS, most likely in larger data center builds, you will have a UPS or a set of UPSs like your A and B units for your data center that are always feeding your equipment. And that UPS, as the name implies, is supposed to be uninterruptible. Uh, On the source side of that UPS is where you can actually have interrupted power with something like an automatic transfer switch or some kind of manual transfer switch flipping between your generator and your 
street power. And when you have larger systems like that and you have a data center, you really don't want to go down. I have seen a lot of people with some kind of maintenance contract on their generator systems where they'll they'll have them fired up and have the diesel fuel changed out every like every month or every quarter and then maybe once a year they will they'll fire it up and they'll actually flip their transfer switch over to it so they put it under load to actually test that the generator part of that system is working and not just the, the diesel motor itself. John, we've talked about cabling and cabinets and power. Oh and, my! Yeah, and it's, it's it's we can't we can't hardly get into as deep as uh, as we could on a lot of these topics. There's so much to talk about, but but at least we're, we're we're giving people a lot of good things to think about here. And another topic I want to bring up is managing this whole mess. So we've built this thing. We've got this huge data center here. And, uh, and how we manage it. And I think that the first thing to raise is the role of a data center manager, because I've worked in facilities where there is a body who is dedicated to managing that data center. I'm wondering if you have, and then uh, what, your, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So in larger data centers, I have seen the role of a facilities manager or of a data center manager. It's usually more of a facilities role than it is a technical one, where this person would be likely a mechanical engineer, uh, well-versed in things like cooling and different types of cooling systems, electrical, uh, their electrical systems, their connections to different telecommunications providers and UPSs and things like that. It's It's generally speaking, probably not a technical person that's actually overseeing the, you know, the configuration of the data center or the cabling itself, other than maybe trying to enforce some sort of clean cabling standards or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and that will generally be in a large data center build or in a co-location facility. I, I know I've talked about this on Packet Bridges before, but I worked uh, worked for a guy who was my boss's boss, one of the best guys. I learned so much from him. And he, in, in addition to his many other responsibilities, played the role of a data, centers, data center facilities manager. And if a cable was out of place, meaning it wasn't labeled, wasn't the right color, et cetera, and it was there for too long, he'd cut the cable and leave it on the person's desk that had put it in there. It's like he was he was just brutal. So Yeah. That's a great way to keep that data center clean. That's funny. What about dealing with environments where they have really strict policies around, you know, you have to step on the sticky mats, no cardboard allowed, like it's gonna immediately combust. A, you know, what's the thought behind that? Because I don't think a lot of people understand why you're not allowed to bring those things into the data center. And B, is it real? Is this is this, you know, blue smoke? What is it? A lot of data centers, especially co-location facilities, will have house rules where you are not allowed to bring any cardboard on the on the raised floor if it's a raised floor or or in the actual data center space. And that's that's there's usually two reasons behind that. One of them is a fire hazard. They don't want things that are flammable in the data center, although all of that plastic is probably quite flammable. But the, the second bit of reason is actually the dust and not dust because it's going to make the gear dirty, but because of the paper the, of the cardboard and the way that their fire detection systems work, their fire detection actually detects the smoke in the air, which is sort of like dust in the air. And if you're bringing in cardboard and ripping it apart and, you know, chopping it up to take it outside, you're throwing a whole bunch of particulate in the air and you can set off their fire alarms, which I'm sure you can imagine the co-location facilities do not want a false fire alarm and, uh, you know, their UPS is to start shutting down and things like that. That would be a horrible thing. Or to dump, what is it? FM 200, whatever they call that chemical. These yeah. Days. If, you have, yeah but... if you have the gas and everybody has to evacuate and, uh, nobody can put on your gas masks. FM 200 makes data centers fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly makes it real when you walk in there. It's like a dance party. Typically, John, have you seen surveillance in data centers, cameras or anything like that? If it's in a facility that you don't own, yes. I have seen a lot of people put things like IP cameras up on the fencing in their cage in like a public colo facility. Usually when it's in their own facility and they already have some kind of camera system there, they won't bother. But, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cheap and it's a good way, um, especially if you get like a good quality camera to be able to see any like large flashing lights or like a fire that erupted in Rack 3 or things like that. How about weight control? I know in some environments, especially the small ones, I'm looking for height and, and things like that, but weight can come into play, especially when you've got one of these pre-built environments where it's a, 
you're basically buying the cabinet of gear and then weight becomes an issue because man they pack those things with feels like barbells and whatnot (laughs) yeah so um when it comes to weight control that's that's one of the things you really need to determine before you get into um overhead trays versus uh, a raised floor because you do not most likely have the same capacity on a raised floor as you do on just a single uh, concrete floor, especially if you're at ground level. But for the most part, your gear in a rack, even if it's fully loaded, probably does not weigh as much as a battery bank in a rack. Yeah, I just I'll, I'll throw in an anecdote here, John. I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying and get that, but I'll just point out that some facilities, maybe they weren't intended to handle a data center originally, but they were kind of co-opted into that. Uh, I remember trying to get some, this is this goes back about 10 odd years, but some Nexus 7000s first gen, and these suckers weighed, I forget how many hundred pounds each fully loaded. And we actually ran into a problem where yeah, you actually can't rack these where you want to rack them because you will exceed the maximum capacity for the floor. Oh, okay. Um, Gosh, I don't know how we actually build the network now. Yeah, I've I've had a few restrictions like that in my experience, but I've for the most part I've usually ran into restrictions on power density before I've ran into weight constri- uh, restrictions because most um, <laughs> most facilities are built with a certain amount of heat meant to be output from each rack. And if you're filling that rack with a whole bunch of one U servers and you're going to run them at a hundred percent, you're probably going to exceed the heat capacity of that rack and the power density before you exceed the actual weight that can be put in that rack and on the floor underneath it. Well, I, I'm chuckling because I'm just remembering installing those Nexus 7Ks back in the day and uh, the amount of power we had to pull to them caused some people some conniptions. Anyway, and that you was have to thing. like pull out every single module and get like four guys to try and prop <laughs> this thing up. Yeah. yeah. And it still weighs about 300 pounds. Yep. That's what, that's what I, everyone knows. Never load the UCS chassis with the blades in it. Always take yep. them out oh, first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why those those little carts that you can like crank, they have a little winch on them. You can crank them up. Those things can come in really handy. A lot of those, uh, you know, if, if your co-location facility has one of those, definitely use it because they can definitely save your back on uh, rack and stack day. John, what a lot of folks think of when they think of a data center is is the NOC, the network operations center, is a bunch of people sitting at consoles and there's big screens across the front and there's graphs and a picture of the globe and a weather map and is that critical to the functioning of a data center, do you think? The people there and what they're doing are likely very critical to that op- data center operation. The big screens, I mean, if you if you go in and talk to most NOC personnel and you ask them about, you know, the big screens up on the wall because they have about two dozen of them and they have all these cool things, they never look at them. It's really just there for you to look at through the glass and just say, ooh, oh, it looks like NASA. But the people there, if there is something going on in the data center, um, they are the like sort of the first responders, especially if it is like a co-location facility and power goes down in some place and you have a bunch of guys in there that are technical. They know how to work on the equipment that you have in there. And more importantly, they're physically there and you can get on the phone with them and they can help you, you know, reboot that server that you have or uh, move this cable around or replace this fiber cable because it looks like it went bad, things like that. But if the data center is operating well, then hopefully those guys don't have a whole lot to do. The the Maytag man, you know, you, you don't want them to be busy. That means something's broken or at least Correct. not frantically busy. You know, so right. certainly there's things to do. I, I think kind of a, a final piece to cover within the management of a data center is physical security. You know, there's a lot of man traps. There's uh, especially these days I had to get uh, the Mac address for my laptop registered with a, a secure facility and then a sticker put on it and a little RFID tag on it and holy cow like the, the amount of the amount of effort it takes to physically get in the environment is pretty impressive any anything kind of catches your thoughts or, or you want to share with the audience as a kind of new ways to do security or things to be aware of yeah so when it comes to like physical access into your data center there's there's a lot of different ways to do it you probably want to make sure that every one of your doors that has some kind of electronic key mechanism also has a mechanical key mechanism because if your data center goes offline or the power goes down uh, on like your security server equipment and your doors won't unlock or uh, your your RFID key won't be recognized at that point, you want some kind of way to get into that room to fix the problem and not be locked out. 
So, so that's definitely something to keep in mind if you're building your own. Uh, if you're putting your stuff in a colo, they will give you some kind of physical key, or sometimes I've seen uh, electronic keys becoming more popular, uh, which is all connected to a system that they control themselves and you likely don't. But if you're doing it yourself, make sure you have an old school analog way to get into the room as a backup to your nice, fancy electronic way. Mm. Well, boy, folks, we've gone just about an hour and we actually had to skip a lot of things on the fly because we had so much material to talk about on the data center. But uh, we hope we planted a lot of seeds in your mind about uh, what it's like to build out uh, a data center and things to consider as you run such a facility. Now, John, you've done some writing on packetpushers.net about this, if I if I remember right. You did a, a power and cooling uh, series there, right? I did, yeah. So I have, um, I, I have a few blog posts in there on sort of the basics of how to calculate power, um, power consumption if you're if you're uh, scoping a new data center to, that you're going to build, how to calculate some cooling. Uh, and, and one of the more important things is 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 getting some of the terminology and having some of the understanding of how these things work because you're most likely going to be working with contractors of different trades, electricians and mechanical engineers for your for your cooling that, Speak a different language than you do. And you don't want like a Darmok and Jalad on Tanagra issue <laughs> happening oh, uh, between Plus you and your points. <laughs> um, so getting the terminology down is something that is, is worthwhile because you're going to be working with the guys who do understand this stuff and you want to be able to speak to them in their language. And John, how else can people follow you on the internet? So I, I do collocate my blogs on packet pushers and, um, you can follow me on Twitter at Packetsar. And you're an active developer on GitHub? I am. I am. I, I've For the last uh, couple of years, I've been writing a lot of Python stuff, and I have some applications out there. And uh, that's that's something that I've uh, I've had a lot of fun doing in the, recently in my career. All right. Thanks a lot for sharing with the community. And, uh, and thanks to you for listening to the Data Knots podcast. That is it for today's edition. I'm Ethan. I'd appreciate your feedback at EC Banks on Twitter via the comment form at packetpushers.net that will accompany this show. If you wanted us to, to maybe dive deeper on something on this topic, uh, let us know there or tweet at me or tweet at Chris or at datanauts underscore show, and we will consider building another show that dives deeper on one of the topics we touched on today. You can tickle the red beard of Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter or via his blog while network Com. And for more of our Data Not shows about infrastructure engineering, point your skis down the mountain of technical information that is, again, packetpushers.net. As you fly down the hill, you'll find many shows for IT engineers in our podcast network, including our very own Data Knots. We talk about all things infrastructure, including containers and cloud, networking, storage, automation, orchestration, and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your man trap catch the bad guys, and your cables be cleanly managed. What was the uh, – I don't know if I'm answering your question, Ethan, because I forgot it. <laughs> <laughs> Poor John. <laughs>